0: Um, If you have a Bible with you, would you open it for me to Romans 9? I say for me, open it for you. Uh, I'm I'm good up here, actually. Um, We're in Romans 9. Uh, We've had, for the last two weeks in the book of Romans 9, we have had our understanding of how we think the world works thoroughly exploded, haven't we? Romans 9 introduces us, to what some call simply Big God Theology. Big God Theology. Um, The God that we create in our own minds is always too small. He always exists in in small categories that we can fit into our nice, neat neat little boxes. And um, yeah, he fits wonderfully into those little boxes. And the problem, of course, is that that little God that we create, that we can understand, doesn't exist He's not actually out there at all. Romans 9 helps us see this, that the real God who exists is far too big for our categories. He exists in this total other way. And so for us, uh, the last two weeks has been uncomfortable, hasn't it? Wonderfully uncomfortable, worshipfully uncomfortable, but it has been uncomfortable nonetheless, right? It's hard for us to come face to face with a God who's very existence calls into question our own, (laughs) who makes our life feel small and, and tenuous just because of his magnitude. He looms so large over his creation. And it. can we be honest? It's been a bit hard for us. If you've been paying attention, that is. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you should go listen to the last two messages where we've sat in this heaviness of this big, God who sovereignly ordains all things. However, when we go back and we look at what we've, been, um, what we've been learning about in Romans 9, when we look through the looking glass of Romans 8, all of a sudden Romans 9 takes on this beautiful, beautiful image, right? This all-powerful God who, who does sovereignly ordain all things. He's the same God who declared in Romans 8.1 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. This all-powerful God who sovereignly ordains all things is the same God who declared that there is now nothing in all creation that can separate us from His love as revealed in Christ. Romans 9 would be pure terror if it were not for the rest of the Bible. It would be terrifying for us. But as it is, God is the kind of God who loves, who is love, whose unstoppable love is matched by his glory. And he loves to show his glory to sinners. He loves to show grace and mercy to sinners. He's the kind of God he gets off his throne in heaven and comes to rescue us. So this is what we've been learning about the last two weeks, that he is both good and great that our God is both lion and lamb, that he is both friend and king. And so it turns out, friends, Romans 9 is really good news for us. The God who loves us is also the God who sits on the throne. Sovereign power over all things. He is at large and in charge. It is his universe. He ordained it. He runs it. And the universe is a much better place because of that fact. So... We can today, and have been, thoroughly humbled, and yet at the same time, we've been thoroughly comforted by this knowledge that this God is so powerful. But let me set the scene for today. We are, we are turning a corner in the flow of Romans 9, uh, 10, 11. Uh, in Romans 8, just to set our scene for today, in Romans 8, we started with, we ended with, I should say, we ended with, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That was where we finished. If you remember that, in Romans, end of Romans eight, we saw this in Romans thirty one, eight thirty one. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Then jumping down to the end, for I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the massive love of Christ of God in Christ. Jesus, our Lord. That's where we finished. Now, if you know the storyline of Scripture, if you know the meta-storyline of the Bible, you'll know that there is a huge question mark hanging over that statement. Because, what about God's chosen people, the Jews? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What about what about the Jews? They rejected Jesus. As a community, they rejected the Messiah when he came to greet them. And so has God failed the Jews? We just read, right, that, that, that um nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Something separated them, didn't it? Something separated them, didn't it? What chance do we have if God's covenant people have been separated? From his love. So this is, this is the question. This is, this is what is at stake in Romans 9, 10, 11. This is why Romans 9, 10, 11 is in the Bible. It's trying to answer this question. Will nothing actually ever separate us from love of Christ? What happened to the Jews? How come they have rejected His gospel, His Messiah? And so Romans 9, 10, 11 is answering this question. How do we make sense of this? How can we have confidence in, in, in a God if his plan has failed already. And so over the last two weeks, we've seen Paul begin to answer that question, or answer it pretty thoroughly already, I think, by saying, no, 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 God's sovereign purposes have always been, are presently being, and will always be, sovereignly worked out, just as according to his will, just as he ordained it. Everything is happening just as he precisely decrees it to be. Nothing is out of step in God's sovereign plan. And so that's what he's begun to say. Let's look at the text now. We're going to be going from 9.30 through to ten um, 10.13. And no, that isn't the time. As in, like, yeah. we're, as in we're not starting at 9.30 a.m. Um, although we might be. Anyway. Um, here we go. It's one of those moments where the, the, like the, the chapter falls right at the wrong spot. It really needed to be chapter. Anyway. This needed to be a new chapter right here. Here we go. Um, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be might, might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Man, that's an offensive thing to say about the Jews. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now to Your Word, We want to meet with you lord we want to know your presence with us right now through your word lord we want to hear your voice we want the secrets of our hearts exposed so that we might receive your grace afresh lord we want to put down all of our defenses all the things we hold up in front of ourselves to keep ourselves safe Lord, we know that that's not truly really safety, Lord. We want to be with you in the light. And so we ask now that through your word today, you would expose us, you call us back into step with you by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to take this passage in two kind of big movements, I guess. Um, The text, firstly, it leads us um, into ourselves to to act as a mirror where we will see, hopefully, um, how it is that we deflect the gospel, how it is we we are wired to resist it because of our sin. And then, secondly, the back half of the passage is going to take us by the hand into the beauty of the true gospel of faith. And so we see both a mirror and an invitation here. We're going to start with the surprise, though, in verse 30. Here's the surprise. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Okay. Okay. Apparently, according to God here, there are two types of people in the world, right? The religious, who are out there living their lives trying to please God, and the irreligious, who are just getting on with their lives, apathetic to God, just whatever, just living their lives, right? Two types of people, those who are pursuing God and moral living, those who are just doing their own thing. And here's the surprise. It is the second group, the second type of people who, and and not the first, Right? Not the first. It's the second type of people who stumble through the wardrobe into Narnia and discover that they are in the glory of the gospel. Not the first group. Do you see that? So much of our text today is going to just be reminding us about the counterintuitive nature of, of, of faith. Counterintuitive, right? It cuts so strongly against how we want this religion thing to work. We want to grant it in our own works. And yet, again and and again and again, when we do that, we're we're actually cutting against the gospel. We see this play out. These two groups of people play out again and again. In, In the life of Jesus, we see it pretty clearly. In the life of Jesus, we have these two groups, right? The devout. Upright, morally serious people who are doing their best to live for God and His law. And they bounce off Jesus hard. They, they, they can't exist in the same room with Jesus without Jesus tearing them to shreds, right? Jesus deals with them harshly, and they deal with Jesus harshly. These are the people that are serious about God. On the other hand, on the other hand right, you've got the sinners, the tax collectors, the, the prostitutes, the the, the, the sinful, right? The obvious, the sick and hurting, the outcasts. And they love Jesus. They flock to him. Why? Because they experience his forgiveness. And they love him for it. This is an enduring spiritual principle. The apathetic, irreligious types are prime to meet God. And the religious have self-inoculated themselves from the gospel. Why? Why is this a thing? Why is this happening? We read it in the next verse, in verse 32. Why is this happening? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They did not pursue it by faith. That is the law. They, but as if it were based on works. I think this is the heart of the issue in the passage. This is the center. This is where, this this zeroes in on what is happening in the human heart in all of us that finds us inoculated to the gospel. The default of every human heart, mine and yours, is that we tend to deal with God on terms of what we think we deserve. We deal with God on the terms of what we think we deserve. That's what he's saying here, right? He's saying that that they pursued it as if it were based on works, right? When when works and our sacrifices and our diligence and our achievements and our efforts and our discipline and our zeal and our energy for God, all these things, when they start to become leverage by which we place demands upon God, we are removing ourselves. From God's grace. Do you see that? We're placing barriers between us and God for us to receive His grace. The Jews, for example, they pursued obedience to God seriously. They were diligent. They were zealous. We see zealous not according to knowledge, right, later on. But they did not pursue that obedience in faith, but as if it were based on their own performance. And so when Jesus arrived in the flesh, when the Lamb of God arrived in their neighborhood, they could not receive him. This is the Messiah. They've been waiting for him. They've been reading the scriptures and seeing he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then when God in the flesh arrived, they could not receive him because they lacked faith. Because they were pursuing the law based on their works. In fact, we see in this next verse, what does it say? They, that is the Jews, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. This is God talking, okay? I am laying in Zion, the city of God, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, so whoever embraces that rock of shame, rock of offense, will not be put to shame. He's quoting here from Isaiah 28, and this is the the metaphor. It should be fairly obvious, but let's just think think this metaphor through. God has built a road, a highway. It's down Main Street of the city of God in Zion. And on this road, it is filled with sincere people doing their best, making sincere efforts to please God. This is the city of God. This is the people of God. They're all here. They're all making their best efforts to get to God. And built right into the middle of the highway is this low trip hazard. That yay big. And just goes across the entire highway. It's not there by accident. It's not a bug. It's a feature. God built into the highway a trip hazard. And people having their eyes fixed on where they're going, one after another, are stumbling, falling falling flat on their faces. They're making their best efforts to get to God, and they are falling flat on their faces. And the Bible is telling us Jesus himself is that trip hazard. He is the barrier that they are falling falling over. He is the brick wall that good, moral, upright people are crashing into as they try to come to God. Jesus himself is. Again, not, not a bug. It's a feature. It's here on purpose. Why is this here? What is happening that people are stumbling over this stone? It's because in the gospel, God is calling us all, calling everyone to abandon all hope of ever. Reaching him on your own merits. Abandoning all hope of ever rescuing yourselves and just throwing yourself upon his mercy. And as long as there is a scrap of your own efforts factoring into your pursuit of God, you will trip over Jesus. Jesus will either be the rock you build your entire life on or the brick wall you crash into. And there is no in between. He's either the brick wall you crash into, or the the rock you build your entire life on. And so today, as long as there is any hope left in you, that based on your own efforts and own righteousness and own ability to earn anything from God, as long as there is a scrap of that within you, you will stumble over Jesus. You'll stumble over him and fall flat on your face and miss grace. Dane Altland, he writes this in his new book uh, called Deeper. He, he tries to put his finger on, on the reasons we're not growing in our faith. And he's got a chapter on each, each of these reasons that he thinks um, we're struggling to continue to grow. And he says this. He says, if you are not growing in Christ, one reason may be that you have drifted out of the healthy discipline of self-despair. It's a discipline. It takes discipline to stay in that place where you know that you are helpless without him and you need him. It is, we drift away from that into self-autonomy, into I got this, into things have gone pretty well, I've had a good week, God kind of owes me now. We drift there. It's a discipline to stay in the place of I, uh, (laughs) it's a discipline to, to, to stay away from God owes me and to stay in God help me discipline we need to all transition from god owes me to god help me that's where we receive grace that's where we receive the gospel i think part of part of the problem is we all have quite a low view of god's holiness and so we think we could probably make it if we try really hard like we had a really good week with a bit of a run-up we reckon we could probably we could probably get there on our own and so we have a high view of ourselves and a low view of God, and so we, we think it's kind of, kind of doable if we're at our best. At our worst, we know we suck, but like at our best. I reckon I could probably please God with my life. Um, I used to live in, in Christchurch in New Zealand back in um, 2006. And in my neck of the woods, in the suburb where I lived in Kashmir, there was a, a river called the Heathcote River. Uh, it's much prettier than the Brisbane River, but also much smaller than the Brisbane River which is pertinent to the story. There it is there. Um, and so I came up with a rule of thumb because of how small, that, like, how small it was and, how, and that they called it a river. I took objection to that. I come from Brisbane. We have actual rivers, right? Big ones. And so I made, I made a new rule of thumb that I think I stand by. And it's a rule of thumb to figure out how do you categorize a body of water? How, when does it go from a river to a stream, a stream to a river? And I decided the rule of thumb is if you can jump over it, it's not a river. It's a stream. If you can jump over it, that's a stream, okay? If you can't jump over it, fair call, cool, river, right? You need a bridge then. I think that's a good rule. Can, can we disagree that that's a good rule? Um, and so I maintain all year, I lived there for a year, I maintained all year, that I could jump that. Um, and therefore, its name is invalid, just uh, in- entirely. At its widest point, I definitely could not jump it. At its narrowest point, I reckon I probably could have. However, um, to their, in their defense and to my endless shame, I never actually tried. I just never made the time. I never you know, find, found the time in my day to go and um, have a crack to officially downgrade it from the Heathcote <laughs> River to the Heathcote Stream. And so it, today, you can go visit the Heathcote River and um, laugh at my failure. Um, now, I would never have attempt, like, even thought in the realms of, I could jump that when it comes to the Brisbane River, right? It's, absur- it's absurdly big. You can't, even with the best run up, you're gonna get like 1% of the way across the river, right? You, you, can, you don't even think in terms of jumping the Brisbane River. However, I reckon I could probably have jumped that even if I couldn't have, I, like I, it felt possible. It felt within the realms of, of, of possibility. And it is in the same, it's the same with pursuing God through our own works and our obedience earning his favor through that. If we think the jump is small and doable, we're probably going to spend our lives trying to do it, living in that kind of framework of, yeah, I reckon I could probably, I could probably earn my righteousness with God. It's doable. But if there's a chasm, right? If we're talking the Brisbane River, we know that there is no hope. We need need another way across that river. We're not jumping it. Each and every one of us in the same way, we need to abandon all hope of ever jumping the chasm of our sin to God. Martin Luther, he talks about this a bunch, right? This blessed despair that we must embrace in our lives. He said this. He said, God has assuredly promised his grace to the humble. That is, to those who lament and despair of themselves... But no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, his devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely God alone. For as long as he is persuaded that he can himself do even the least thing towards his salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself, and therefore is not humbled before God, but presumes that there is, or at least hopes and desires, that there may be at some place, time, or or some work for him by which he may at length attain to salvation. But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself and chooses nothing for himself, but waits for God to work. Then... He has come close to grace. As long as we are committed to our own entitlements before God, our own deserving, our own rights, we will miss the gospel of grace altogether, which comes to us not through our deserving it, but as a gift through the blood of Jesus. We must empty our hands before we can receive grace. Jesus taught us, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the blessed ones? The poor in spirit, those who are empty of themselves. We need the Lord today to remind us all of our absolute spiritual desolation, our poverty. And we need to embrace this kind of self-despair that throws ourselves on his mercy and goes, I can't do it, and I've been trying, and it gets me nowhere. In fact, it's offensive to God that we would even try to jump the Brisbane River. It's offensive. It is hopeless. And so let's abandon all all hope in the good way. Let's throw it away. Let's repent of our self-delusions that we think that at our best, God is still kind of impressed with us. No. Let's embrace our spiritual poverty, receive the grace that he wants to give to us. Let's lean into our insufficiency and receive him by faith. That is the safest place to be. It's the safest place to be. That's where the text goes next, actually, in verse five. Well, in verse five, we're going to go verse one first. He says this, brothers. My heart's desire and prayer for God, to God for them, is that they may be saved. So, just a quick sidebar. I won't stay on this, but there's a whole sermon here, I reckon. Paul saw no contradiction between what he said earlier about, his, about God's sovereign choosing of them and then prayer. Paul sees no contradiction. God's sovereignty, prayer. Of course I pray. My heart's desire is that they be saved. In fact, I, I think because he believes in a sovereign God, he prays, right? Because he knows what God can actually do something. He actually has the power to call sinners to himself. And so, he course, he prays. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I'm sure he's thinking of himself there as well, right? He was the zealous Jew who was hunting down the church. And the Lord called him against his ignorance. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God... And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So these Jews, they have a a zeal, but not according to knowledge. So there is a category of people out there, the Jews are the example here, who are um, sincere in their belief and thoroughly wrong in their belief. In our culture today, we basically believe that only sincerity matters and that truth is totally just whatever you make of it. Uh, this verse reminds us, right, that we can be entirely sincere and entirely wrong. Entirely sincere, entirely wrong. turns out the truth really does matter. There's this famous, famous moment in our NFL history in the States, which is like now like immortalized over there. Uh, Jim Wrongway Marshall picks up the ball, Halfway, runs, scores a glorious touchdown. The commentators, the whole time, he's going the wrong way. His little, um, you can see him on his haunches at the end there. Um, Their little celebration is tragic. Um, this guy is now well known for scoring a touchdown at the wrong end, right? So you can go find it on YouTube, it's fantastic. <laughs> It'll make you smile, make you cry. This guy was zealous. He was zealous, he ran hard, but his running was not according to knowledge. Right? He was sincere. His, his legs were pumping with all sincerity, but he was going the wrong way, right? Paul's point is that the, this is Israel's problem. They were committed to their path wholeheartedly. They were all in, right? They were, they were not looking at other gods. They were seeking Jesus. They were seeking the Lord. A lot of effort, not according to knowledge. Why? Because their path lacked faith. They were trying to earn God's approval through the law. Verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend from the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's saying here that um, there's no need for us to go on a mystical quest to try and find God. Right? We, don't need to, we don't need to ascend into the heavens to go to where God is. We don't need to go down to the depths of, 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 um, of the dead to go find him. He's, he's, he's come, right? Jesus, he's already, he's already showed up. He came to us, right? True faith proclaims. He's already come to us. That's what it says, verse 8. What does it say? What does true faith say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, the gospel. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And you believe in your heart that God raised him up from the dead. You will be saved. Isn't that a great verse? I love the clarity of this verse. I know there there were some pretty convoluted things just before. But I love the clarity of this verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Faith. Faith apparently requires of us a public confession, public proclamation. Or also requires from us a personal commitment to Jesus. Both these things, I, think, I, don't, I don't think there's two separate, um, two separate activities. I think this is one and the same. It's two sides of the same coin. It works itself out in our hearts as well as in our mouth, right? It is two sides of that same coin ultimately. Think about what this verse is saying in the context of what we've just been talking about in Romans 9. I wonder if the last two weeks have left you feeling at all confused about where you stand with God. Do you have any lingering doubts over your salvation? Is there even a single Adam? of doubt in you, that God has called you. Here now Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. You say, but what if I'm not one of the chosen ones? Have you confessed? Do you believe? So, say, yeah, I do. And guess what? Good news for you. You'll be saved. This is what the Word of God says. Let's not overcomplicate things. <laughs> Do you believe? Do you confess? And you will be saved. That's what the Word says. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who calls on him. He's saying that the Jews are still welcome, right? Those moral upright religions, that group one that wouldn't come to him, they're still welcome. Everyone gets in on the same same way, right? Through his grace. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who will be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Who will be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Who is excluded from that statement? Well, only those who won't call on the name of the Lord. That's who. And that's it. None are excluded from that who call on the name of the Lord. he bestows his riches on all who call on him. Friends, the only ones who aren't coming to Jesus are the ones who aren't calling on his name. That's it. That's it. Whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. (sighs) Implication of that verse. You know what? If you live by your own works, there's a good chance you will be put to shame. If you're going to build your life on your own efforts, your own deserving, your own zeal for God, your own sacrifices, your own, what you deserve, yeah, you'll be put to shame. You'll always live in that fear of being found out, it not being enough. However, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Goddory knows everything about you and he loves you. There's a lot of freedom there. There's a lot of freedom there, friends, to live in that kind of life. What is it exactly in this verse that we actually call to confess? That's where we're just going to end, uh, finish today. What is it exactly that we must confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts? There's two, two, two parts to this, obviously. The first one, we confess that Jesus is Lord. And secondly, that God has raised him from the dead. So firstly, Jesus is Lord. Okay, we throw that around all the time. What, is it, what are we saying? What do we mean when we say Jesus is Lord? Well, if we could rewind the clock and go back to first century Roman times, you would have, if you were a first century Roman, you would have lived your whole life knowing that there was one Lord. And his name was not Jesus. His name was Caesar. To claim that anyone else was Lord is high treason punishable by death. Friends, Christians died for saying Jesus is Lord. It is an incredibly politically charged statement in the first century of Rome. They were fed to lions for this. To say Jesus is Lord is not lip service. It is confessing your allegiance to the king. It is coming underneath his authority. We are coming underneath his, his reign and his rule. He is not just Lord. He is your Lord. He's not just God. He is your God and your life now lives underneath his. When you say Jesus is Lord, this is what you're saying. You're saying you are my king and my life now exists for your purposes, not my own. You are my Lord. Have you confessed that Jesus is your Lord? Are you following him as your Lord? Does he have that kind of authority in your life? Firstly, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is our king. And secondly, that God raised him from the dead, right? I don't think this simply means believing in the fact of the resurrection, although I think it absolutely does as well. But it's not just mere belief because, well, I can guarantee you Satan believes in the resurrection as well. He's not one of God's people. To believe for yourself that Jesus is alive, that God raised him from the dead, that he is now seated at the throne right hand of God, and that he has rescued you. I think this is about believing in the grace given us in the gospel, what God has done for us. We're putting our faith in what God has done to redeem us and rescue us. We're believing in his saving work for us. And so we submit ourselves to his lordship. We confess he is king over us and we receive his saving work for us. That is how we are saved. That is faith. That is faith. Let's pray. Lord, today we want to give up on ourselves. Lord, we want to abandon all hope and give in to the good kind of self-despair that acknowledges who we truly are. Lord, we don't want to talk about what we deserve. We don't want our relationship with you to be about the leverage we have with you. Lord, we throw all of that away. Lord, we don't want to go there. We know that that leads us nowhere but death. Lord, would you help us empty our hands of all that we have and then raise them up to receive you once more, Lord? Lord, we abandon all hope and we receive you again by faith, Lord. We confess that you are Lord, you are our Lord. We confess that you died for our sin and rose again to new life, Lord, that you reign. Lord, we want to now come and confess with our mouths in song who you are, what you've done for us. Lord, we want to believe in our hearts that you are risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. and Lord, we want to proclaim together today the great invitation of the gospel that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Give us your grace to go there together today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.